Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Soho Bites. Soho Bites is the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic Delaghi, and because this is episode 10, that most momentous of milestones, a celebration is in order. So we're going to be taking cocaine. Sorry, talking cocaine. We're going to be talking, talking about cocaine. That's both the drug and the 1922 silent film of that name. In the second half of the show, Michelle Facey, a silent film specialist who works with the Kennington Bioscope, makes a return visit to the show to talk about cocaine. That's the film, not the drug. And before that, I'll be talking to writer Rob Baker, also about cocaine. That's the drug, not the film. Specifically, he tells me about the moral panic that sprang up around its use after the First World War. And more specifically, it's used by women. And even more specifically than that, it's used by white women who are being sold these drugs by sinister foreign types. And of course, Soho is part of that story. In both conversations, a man called Billy or Brilliant Chang crops up. If you're a fan of Peaky Blinders, you'll know who I'm talking about. A Chinese drug dealer who became notorious in the tabloids after a few high-profile drug casualties dragged him reluctantly into the spotlight. A character based on Brilliant Chang appears in the film Cocaine. According to some sources, Brilliant Chang ran the drugs and prostitution rackets in Soho in the years after World War I, but that, it appears, is not necessarily the case. Stick around to hear more. During the years of the First World War, 1914 to 18, there was a noticeable increase in the number of women, either by themselves or with female friends, frequenting the clubs, bars and restaurants of Soho. And the reason for this is obvious. Lots and lots of men were off fighting in the trenches. The attitude of society in the tabloid press to this phenomenon was not as condemnatory as you might expect. These were extreme times after all. But as the war drew to a close, and many women decided they actually quite liked the new freedoms the war had afforded them, and were not going back indoors just because the men were coming home, some of these liberal attitudes began to shift. And there was something else to worry wider society. Drugs. Drugs that were, as far as the tabloid press were concerned, being foisted upon our girls by devious foreigners. Rob Baker is a historian 
and has written two books about some less well-known aspects of London's history. For a while, I've been nervously stalking him on Twitter, trying to pluck up the courage to ask him to come on the show. I eventually did ask him, and he said yes straight away, and I think there's a lesson there for all of us. We are very fortunate to be offered probably the quietest place in Soho to record the interview, the clock tower of St. Anne's Church on Dean Street. But first, you have to get up there. Okay, right up the spooky staircase. It's actually quite tricky to walk. And here we are. I don't know what's the opposite of bowels because I presume bowels are in the basement, and so we're in the. This must be the uh, uh, the brains. It's not quite right, though, is it? No. It's a sort of high version of the bowels that we're in, <laughs> whatever they are. The, the large intestine. <laughs> and although it's quiet yeah, most of the time, the piece is shattered on a regular basis, as regular as clockwork, in fact. If you can hear that, that's the clock mechanism on the bong. I'm going to turn it up. But eventually we made ourselves comfortable in this strange little room halfway up the clock tower and began the interview. So we're, we've settled ourselves down now in the uh, clock tower of St Anne's. Uh, very honoured to be here. And um, the theme of the, this episode is the kind of moral panic that set in all over the country at the end of the First World War uh, to do with drugs, specifically uh, young women and drugs. And this is a theme that crops up in the film Cocaine that we'll be looking at later. And um, I'm here with Rob Baker, and Rob's written quite a lot about this uh, in one of his books, uh, Details at the End. Rob, how did, this, uh, how did this moral panic take root? One of the incidents that the newspapers got really excited about was the death of a very young actress called Billy Carlton. Towards the end of 1918, she was probably one of the biggest stars on the uh, West End stage. She may have gone down slightly, because she she was a bit of a um, she took a lot of drugs she took opium, and then she also took a lot of cocaine and I, the major producers at the time um, started to notice that and she started getting uh, um, fewer jobs but she was in a stage play called Freedom of the Seas a musical in 1918 and after the First World War had ended there was a big victory ball at the Royal Albert Hall. Huge, thousands of people were there. It was organised by the Daily Mail and it was a charity event, charity for the nurses, I think, mostly, that had been working during World War One. And uh, Billy Carlton was there with friends at the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, she came, after it finished, they all went back to her flat and she had a very nice flat in Savoy Mansions, sort of part of the Savoy Hotel or just behind it, uh, sort of paid for by one of her men friends which she had there were she was always she always had about two or three middle-aged men who looked made sure she had enough money to live on and i don't think it was any more than that they all went back to her her apartment and they all stayed there was about three or four of them and they stayed there until two or three in the morning and then the others went home 
and I think she'd probably taken too much cocaine and took um, took a sort of barbiturate, veronal, they were called, which was left in her apartment by one of her men friends, a Dr. Stewart. And in the morning, her maid came to see if she wanted any breakfast, and she died. And the newspapers went... It, it became a huge thing, and I think it was... It was about women taking drugs, partying, doing stuff on their own, and and it all come from the independence that women had had got through the First World War, working on by themselves, going out with themselves without the men around, and it was a sort of moral panic, and she was the taken up as a big example of what could go wrong, and and. And people felt sorry for her. So she wasn't vilified then by the press for, for this lifestyle she'd adopted? No, I don't think she was. I think people thought that men had taken advantage of her and given her drugs. And I think genuinely they felt sorry, sorry for her. And, and, and the people that she was with that night was a, was a dress designer called Reggie de Vale. They, they, V-E-U-L-L-E, so I've never heard any... From now on we'll call him Reggie, but Reggie, we're not quite yeah. sure how that's pronounced. It's one of those things, whenever you do anything like this, you can't, you've read it a thousand times, but you've never heard anyone say it. So um, he was quite an effeminate... He had a wife, but it, I think he was gay, and he was a dress designer, and he was basically a drug dealer as well. He got thrown into prison for dealing drugs in the end. Because he provided the drugs that yeah. the press thought had killed her? Yes, he provided drugs and their lifestyle got into the press and they took opium in their pyjamas and night dresses and these parties would last all night long and it all got into the press. And uh, then it became known that the opium that was supplied for these parties was supplied by the wife of a Chinese man who lived in Limehouse, which was where Chinatown was in those days. There were probably only 100, 200 Chinese people living there then, mostly sailors. But a lot of them took opium, and then some of it, you know, was taken, you know, out of Chinatown. And that turned into a big yellow peril, moral panic as well. So it's this um, Daily Mail cocktail. Well, the Daily Mail, like Daily it was... Daily Express. The Daily Express. In those days. OK. So it's this cocktail of drugs, women, sex, sinister foreigners. Is Fu Manchu from around this time? Was that... Just slightly, after, just slightly afterwards. So Sax Roma took all these stories of Yellow Peril and, and in dangerous Chinese uh, uh, arch-criminals and uh, beautiful English women who were being, you know, drugged and, and God knows what was happening to them and wrote all these stories, like the Fu Manchu stories and other stories, um, that people lapped up. So fast forward four years and there's another burst of moral panic and another young woman dies at the hand of drugs and this time round the press has its own Fu Manchu character to pin it on. Yeah, so it was in 1922 and another young woman died, supposedly of cocaine poisoning and she was called Frida Kempton and she was a dance in instructress so at nightclubs she would be paid um, a minimal amount to dance with men and she'd have to do that for long, long hours into the early hours and so 
quite often these girls took stimulants to keep going, uh, cocaine and, uh, or amphetamines, and she took too much, and she died. And in the, the press, slavering press, um, introduced another character, another Chinese character, called Billy Brilliant Chang, who was um, from a rich background, a Chinese background, from a rich family. He, he knew about four languages. He was quite sophisticated. But it soon became... It soon... The newspapers and the police realised that he was dealing in drugs, but nothing was really proved. And he was at the coroner... Went, went at the inquest at Frieda Kempton's... Uh, after Frieda Kempton's death, he was there... And he said that Frieda was a friend of mine, but I knew nothing about the cocaine. It was all a mystery to me. But the newspapers noted some of the girls rushed to Chang, patted his back, and one, more daring than the rest, fondled the Chinaman's black, smooth hair and passed her fingers slowly through it. So they couldn't prove that he was anything to do with it, but he sold up his restaurant and moved to to Limehouse, the traditional area for the Chinese at the time. That was Chinatown in, in the East End. I suppose this is the first time we've seen the suggestion of untoward sexual activity between good, upstanding British girls and these devious, dastardly foreigners. They're certainly hinting towards it in that quote you read out there. Which is, which is what the Yellow Peril, the so-called Yellow Peril, was all about. So... Chang, the police hated Chang by then, and there were numerous police raids. He had to move back to Limehouse. And in the end, they raided his Limehouse flat, and they found some cocaine, and there was a trial. And during the trial, the press had a field day, and it was the the world pictorial news, which uh, said, sometimes one girl alone went with Chang to learn the mysteries of that intoxicatingly beautiful den of iniquity above the restaurant. At other times, half a dozen drug-frenzied women together joined him in wild orgies. Now, I suspect they were making all this up. <laughs> That's a shame. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> but as well as the cocaine they found in the raid, they found a big pile of letters. So essentially, Brilliant Chang would, would sit at one end of his restaurant, see a beautiful woman, and send across one of these letters that he'd already written and he had a huge pile of in his flat and that this read dear unknown please do not regard this as a liberty that i write to you as i am really unable to resist the temptation after having seen you so many times i should extremely like to know you better and should be glad if you would do me the honor of meeting me one evening where we could have a little dinner and a quiet chat together i do hope you will consent to this as it will give me great pleasure, and in any case, do not be cross with me for having written to you. Now, you'd think that would be a huge failure, but apparently it was very successful. Whether it was more the drugs or the charming letter, we don't know. And he's very good-looking. He, he, was, he, was, he, was a good looking, he was a good-looking man, but he was, at the trial, he was sentenced to 14 months in prison, and then he was deported. And it was said that when, when the ship left the Royal Albert docks... One girl shouted out as he was leaving, Come back soon, Chang! <laughs> but he, he, I don't think he did, did he? I mean, no, what, no one, what happened nobody ever heard. No, nobody ever heard from him again or what happened to him or anything. So he was deported from the country. At the time, he was, he was considered to be a drug kingpin 
Is there any truth in that? I mean, was, is there any evidence that he, he imported giant amounts of coke and all this kind of stuff? I don't, I don't think he did. He wasn't really... Uh, I think the press and the courts tried to make him as some huge drug dealer, but I think he, he probably just supplied small amounts to women he wanted to go to bed with as opposed to being some kind of international drug fiend. Fair enough. <laughs> well, we've all done that. <laughs> I want to extend a huge thanks to Tony Shrimplin from the Museum of Soho, who facilitated that interview with Rob by giving us access to the church clock tower, and also to Amy, who took us all the way to the very top of the tower and allowed us to wind the clock. It was a huge honour, if a bit knackering. And of course, thanks to Rob for coming on Soho Bites, and you can find details about Rob's work at the end of the show and in the show notes for this episode at SohoBitesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. So although Brilliant Chang probably wasn't the international narcotics peddler he was made out to be by the tabloids of the day, this didn't stop the film industry jumping on the bandwagon. And in 1922, a version of Chang, a character called Min Fu, appeared in the film Cocaine, which was written by Frank Miller, no, not that one, and directed by Graham Cutts. Cocaine was shot in Teddington, but is set mainly in three areas of London. The genteel outer suburbs to the west, the dark and dingy alleyways of Limehouse in the east, and of course, the streets and nightclubs of Soho. The central character, Madge, played by Flora Le Breton, is a young, naive woman who has hitherto led a charmed life, sheltered from the world by her doting, wealthy father, Montague Webster, played by Teddy Arundel. He loves his daughter above all else and is fearful of her being exposed to the wider world as it contains dangers such as nightclubs where people dance to jazz and even more dangerous than that, where drugs are easily available. And Montague Webster knows more than most about the dangers of nightclubs and drugs because, as we learn early in the film, he is in fact number one, the powerful head of a drug smuggling syndicate that supplies Soho with its cocaine. Because of his guilt and fear, he tries to keep Madge away from her friend Jenny, played by Hilda Bailey, who's already in the clutches of cocaine, cocaine bought from Montague's dealers, and from Stanley, played by Cyril Raymond, a respectable young man who has fallen for Madge's charms. Further down the chain of commanding Number One's drug empire are two Chinese characters, the previously mentioned Min Fu, the suave, well-dressed manager of the Live 100 Club who sells cocaine to the club's well-heeled patrons, and Loki, a sinister, wretched cripple who supplies drugs to addicts on Soho streets. Cocaine starts impressively with a lingering shot of the electric lights of Piccadilly Circus before moving us into the nightclub where we encounter Jenny, who appears agitated. An intertitle suggests that this may be down to cocaine addiction. We then meet our two Chinese characters, and this is where the film becomes extremely problematic for a modern audience. For a start, they're played by white actors, which is very troubling today. 
And on top of this, particularly in the case of Loki, this limping street dealer with a gnarled, twisted hand, they spend the whole time on screen trying to look as menacing and villainous as possible, the very embodiment of the racist yellow peril trope. To talk about cocaine, I invited Michelle Facey into the studio. Michelle is a silent film expert and a programmer for the Kennington Bioscope. If you don't know what the Kennington Bioscope is, she explains this at the end of the conversation. I began by asking her to give me a brief summary of the story. Cocaine is a, is a lurid, cautionary tale of drugs in the London underworld, in which um, Madge, the daughter of a wealthy businessman who runs West End clubs and trades in cocaine, is so sheltered and dominated by her daddy that this um, motherless girl, her only friend being the housekeeper, meets a nice young man from the county set but is driven to run away and take shelter with her friend Jenny after her father tries to marry her off to one of his business associates and very quickly is introduced to the drug cocaine to which Jenny is addicted. Earlier in the programme, Rob was talking about the moral panic around young women and drugs and that kind of thing after the First World War. And cocaine was just one of several films on this theme. But even so, it was probably the most controversial of the lot, as I gather. Could you talk a little bit around that subject? I know that it caused some offence to um, the Chinese community, for example. The film was initially shown in London at several cinemas. And then the... BBFC banned it and then that was reviewed by the LCC, London County Council, who confirmed that banning order on the film. But in other parts of the country, other regions, the watch committees reviewed the film and passed it. Um, So it was a strange situation where it was banned from being shown in London, although it had already been shown to some extent, and was now available and being advertised as being shown in the regions. So, for example, in Cardiff, it was due to be shown. But one of the local cinemas there decided to make a feature for its advertising to promote the film. The lurid news story about Frida Kempton and Billy Chang, Brilliant Chang, and to plaster that on the exterior of the cinema saying, read this and then come and see the film. The Chinese character Min Fu is supposedly based on Brilliant Chang, isn't he? Yes. This did not go down at all well with the Chinese community in Cardiff and a Chinese resident of the Dockland area, Lo Hing, sent a letter to the Chinese Consul General complaining about the film and the advertising related to it, saying that it was an insult to the Chinese people and I think there were other protests as well. And he was went on to be interviewed by a police inspector who reported his um, objections to the portrayal of the low-key character and the general offence that the film had caused to the Chinese community. And a week later, the chief constable reversed his position and banned the film, so he couldn't show it in Cardiff. So if you wanted to see cocaine in 1922... You couldn't see it in London, you couldn't see it in Cardiff, but you could see it in other towns. Glasgow. Right. I've got a nice ad um, which plasters the word cocaine diagonally across the uh, advertising as suggested by uh, Kinematograph Weekly, who said to go bold with the title. And the cinema in Glasgow certainly went with that. The LCC, as I said, upheld the ban by the BBFC And the film was later, in 1922, retitled, resubmitted, recut, and the cocaine references were taken out. And instead, they made the film about 
the dangers of drink and dance. So there were, <laughs> I mean, there is a, a prominent picture of a Moët Chandon bottle in the film, um, but that's next to some cocaine. So they must have just substituted it for bottles of Moët Chandon and glasses of champagne, and they retitled it While London Sleeps. Okay. I've seen that title on IMDb, places like that. So that's not an alternative title as such for different regions. That's that's a kind of recut version of the film. Recut a version, yeah. They version. couldn't call it cocaine. Because there's no cocaine. Because there's no cocaine, cocaine in it yeah. anymore. Like Coca-Cola. Yes. You were saying when we were setting up that when Billy Carlton and Frieda Kempton died, on both those occasions, some of these other drug films similar to Cocaine, were re-released, which sounds a bit grim to me. What were these other films? What, what were they like? Were they, they seemed to be less controversial in their way. They weren't banned, were they, like Cocaine was? No. So the case of a doped actress came out in 1919, about the time of uh, the inquest into Billy Carlton's death. Her death was linked to some sort of sense of permissiveness that was arising post-war. And also, because of the interest in, in Billy Carlton out of the uh, archives of uh, film companies came things like Universal's The Sign of the Poppy from 1916, which is advertised as the greatest indictment of the drug-taking habit ever shown on the screen. Without being sordid, it is true to life. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's another film called Traffic in Drugs, Two Reels, a true portrayal of the cocaine menace founded upon facts collected from authentic sources. It will pack your theatre. That was advertised in the Kenemans. So this Weekly. is advertised to cinema owners. Yeah, this, rather, this is a trade paper. Yeah. yeah, this is a trade paper, and then they kind of give you advice in the trade paper on how to promote that film. And there was a film called Crushing the Drug Traffic, in two reels. It's a film in which an actress helps a detective unmask a fake theatrical agent as a dope peddler, which sounds like another good West End-based scenario. Sounds like a good film. But lost, lost. I fear that film is lost. The writer of Cocaine, uh, Frank Miller, who also wrote Crushing the Drug Traffic, was a very prolific writer, and in 1922 he wrote dozens of films. He wrote an equally lurid anti-Mormon propaganda film. In fact, he wrote two. One was based, one at least, was based on Winifred Graham's novel, and which also starred Ward McAllister, who plays Min Fu in Cocaine, in a caricature role, this time as a Mormon elder involved in the cap capturing of women for wives. Um, wow. I, I found out that this film, Trapped by the Mormons, was actually remade in 2005. <laughs> In the US. Um, with the with, same title? Yeah, with the great promotional line, if you only see one Mormon exploitation flick this year, make it trapped by the Mormons. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like it was a parody the second time round, but quite serious the first time round? Yeah. Um, wow. And, yeah, and looking at Frank, Frank Miller's writing credits, which included another Mormon exploitation film in 1922, Married to a Mormon... I saw that he'd written the script for the film adaptation of H.G. Wells' Wheels of Chance, which we showed at the Cinema Museum last year. So these other drug films, they weren't banned by the censor or by these local watch committees. So what was it about cocaine, do you think? Well, it, it, yeah, it was, it was noted by the trade press that other films had been passed. The Kinematograph Weekly noted, while cocaine has been banned, a short subject showing in much greater detail the methods by which drugs are smuggled into this country has been passed. If the first subject was stopped because it might educate the public to the existence of the drug traffic, why was this other subject passed? 
Indeed. So, you know, they, the trade press wanted to see the film come out. They didn't like the feeling that stories were being censored. You know, they're going to be showing in places where there's, you know, really no drug trade or no... Um, there weren't all the dance halls of London, you know, the sort of places that are featured in the film as the kind of breed, you know, in vertical commas, breeding ground for, um, you know, drug activity. Um, it didn't have the feel of, they didn't have the feel of London and the fastness of London to foster that. So it could be the, the, the Soho-ness of it that got it banned. Yeah, that and, and you know, young women... Doing their thing. Doing their thing. And, you know, doing the shimmy and dancing to jazz. And, you know, it's the looseness of that, of, that, <laughs> of that Soho club. You know, it's, you know, it is quite extreme for the time to see that. You know, people reclining on sofas and having a snog. And... It does look like quite a wild club. That opening mm. sequence, people are letting their hair down mm. quite a lot. And I think there are two women dancing with each other. Yeah, there's two women dancing with each other. Yeah. And certainly the second club, the Limit Club, yeah, you know, which is, you know, basically there's no limit. Yeah. <laughs> the No Limit Club, <laughs> I think, is the implication. The reverend who's in charge of the chapel next door makes the point that the, the devil gets a, a better audience next door than he gets congregants in his chapel. Well, it's more fun, isn't it? That's why. Yeah. I think. And, the, and the intertitle describes the, the devil's people as dressing in motley. And, you know, you've just seen before that the band in the Limit Club all dressed in kind of clown costumes, minus the red noses. It is quite, it is quite wild, the second club, isn't it? I mean, the first club is slightly wild. Hmm. They're all wearing, I think, white kind of military costumes, the, those jazzers. Yeah, yeah, they've got a, a uniform on, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the second time round, it's gone, which doesn't quite make sense because isn't he trying to put the police off? It's closed down one club because Loki's been busted outside. Hmm to close that one down straight away overnight and then set up this other club, you'd think they'd go a bit more low-key, low-key. Uh, yeah. um, and not, you know, make it much more sedate and mundane, but um, they just push, they just go wild, they just go mad with their clowns and their proximity to the church. <laughs> um, jazzy dancing. and Jazzy dancing. Who would have thought it? So it talks a bit about Frank Miller. The director was, is Graham Cutts. Graham Cutts was quite a prolific early director and he was one of the people who nurtured Alfred Hitchcock quite early on. But then they fell out and if you ever listen to, I um, highly recommend The Secret History of Hollywood by Adam Roach, the podcast there, but he talks about Graham Cutts as being a kind of, almost like a Salieri figure and he resents Hitchcock's later success and and he talks about Graham Cutts as being this quite pedestrian, nuts and bolts director who doesn't do much. But I thought there were little flourishes in this film that were quite nice, particularly the opening sequence was, it felt like a proper film, it didn't feel like a nuts and bolts film. Was he an important director, Graham Cutts? Was he, does he deserve this reputation as being a kind of by-the-book, um, unimaginative director? I think that he was a showman, he was known as the master showman of the North, even though he hailed from Brighton. Um, he spent several years as a film exhibitor and would tour films up and down the country, present them. Um, so he you know, really got to know what worked for audiences. And, you know, he started in about 1909, I think, and a decade or so later, he 
felt that he might want to get into film production. Um, so Cocaine was the first film that Graham Cutts directed by himself, but he did go on to make many other films. One of my most desired lost films, in fact, is Woman to Woman, starring Betty Compson. Um, I'd like that to be found. Check your cupboards, check your attic, please. <laughs> and uh, he made a series of films, the Rat films, with... Um, Britain's greatest silent matinee idol, Ivan Novello, be still our beating hearts, um, yeah. The Rat, The Return of the Rat and The Triumph of the Rat. Oh, he played The Rat, did he? Yes. Oh, OK. Yeah, it's set in the Parisian underworld, The Rat films. And um, Graham Cutts also w was one of the founders of the Gainsborough Studios, based initially at Islington and then in Hoxton. He was a notorious womanizer. Oh right, didn't um, know Graham Cutts. So, you know, he fell out with a lot of people. If you know, he was a difficult person, I think. So, you know, he fell out with Adrian Brunel and Hitchcock and Balkan, did he fall out with him? Yeah, I think yeah. This is what I gather about him from Adam's massive series on Hitchcock is that he um he was a slightly difficult person. He worked with um Looking at his his list of films on IMDb, some of the same actors in this film crop up. Flora Le Breton, who plays Madge in this, crops up in quite a few of his films. She was quite a big star, wasn't she? What do you know about her? Yeah, she was known as the English Mary Pickford. She trained at RADA, receiving a scholarship to train there at just 15 years old. Did she have a, a talkie career? No, she didn't have a talkie One career. One of these who just stopped no. at the end of the... Yeah, st yeah stopped at the, the end of the silent period. And Hilda Bailey. Hilda Bailey. She did go on into yeah. talkies. Yeah, she did. But she still only has about, I think, 29 film credits. I think she's good. I, I think her performance is better, more believable than yeah. Flora Le Breton's. Yeah. Flora Le Breton, you know, she's, she's doing that. You know, if you imagine Mary Pickford playing such a role, you know, you're, you're going to be worried, concerned for this, you know. The, the, the intertitles, when they talk about Madge, played by... Flora Le Breton show, you know, white Carla lilies for her yeah. purity. And then they contrast that with when she enters the club, white Carla lilies and a skull. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so you show, you know, you're just demonstrating the peril that she's in. The version that we've both seen is on the BFI player and is in horrible condition. There's all sorts of splodges and stuff all over the images. And the intertitles, which I know you're very keen on, Sometimes they appear for a second. Yeah, I paid close attention to you the intertitles. You do like intertitles. an intertitle, don't you? I do like an intertitle. Um, you know, some of the intertitles in this film, so this would be a signifier as to her, this character's um, drug addiction. Lazy, languid, laughing Jenny, today depressed, tomorrow merry. Um, that's showing the ups and downs of her moods, mood swings with, the, um, with her drug addiction. Uh, the Kinematograph Weekly noted the fact that one of the faults of the film they felt was that the intertitles were too uh, heavy going and too frequent and they could be much more spare. In fact, that, that some of the intertitles lent themselves to laughter, unintentional laughter, uh, oh, really? which is not a good thing in a silent to film. To a contemporary audience, not just to, to the contemporary audience. Yeah, audience. no, to the contemporary audience. Yeah, so they they were yeah they were had that criticism about it. They didn't just accept everything. And uh, so there was cocaine, the mirage of life, the poison which promises spring and brings winter. Dot 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 that destroys life and love. 
dot, 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 glorifies the devil and scoffs at the peace God alone can give. And then the, behind those words is an art intertitle with a skull. Yeah, that's what happens to you when you have cocaine, you turn mm. into a skull. My favourite one, though, is the classic <laughs> intertitle from the film, which um, I want you to imagine what Maggie's voice is like and perform that intertitle. OK. Hello, Daddy, I've had some cocaine. <laughs> Perfect. So, cast-wise, other than Flora LeBreton and Hilda Bailey, who else have we got in the cast that's uh, of we've interest? We've got Teddy Arundel. As Montague Webster. As Montague Webster, number one. Yep. He, unfortunately, didn't see 1922 out. He, he passed away that year. Ward McAllister, who plays Min Fu, the Billy Chang-esque character, uh, was an American actor. A white uh, American actor as well. Yeah, a white American actor, <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, there, there, yeah, there's two uncredited roles in the film. There's the Reverend John. He is uncredited. And also the actual Chinese man, as opposed to the other two, played by Ward McAllister and Tony Fraser. So, yeah, the Reverend John Marsh and the Chinese man are not credited so we don't know who they are low key was played by tony fraser who was born in india but indian uh, not not indian he's a no not Bri- indian british, as yeah, a, a british, british raj yes person, yeah. yeah there's not much detail on him funnily enough he plays a crook in crushing the drug traffic in the same year the other frank miller story which preceded cocaine and he played in a few films at that time, but disappears off the scene in the same year. And there's not even a date for his passing on right. IMDb. So he just disappeared off the scene completely. Because both those um, Chinese characters who are played by white people, they're awful. We talked about Piccadilly a couple of weeks ago, mm. which is seven years later than this film and mm. slightly moved on in terms of racial representation. But this film is reprehensible, really, in its portrayal of... Chinese people or non-white people the fact that they're played by white people and particularly Loki because he's just a caricature of evil yeah well it's it's the classic trope of you know disability equals malevolence yeah um and foreign foreign foreign, yeah add in that that as well foreign and disabled how much worse can you get than a foreign disabled Mm, person yeah yeah Tell me what Kennington Bioscope is, what you do, and is cocaine in good enough condition for you to show it at one of your evenings? So I'm one of the programming presenting members of the Kennington Bioscope, a silent film exhibition group who put on events regularly at the Cinema Museum in Lambeth. The Cinema Museum was once part of the Lambeth Workhouse, where Charlie Chaplin went as a child with his mother and half-brother, Sid. And there's a lot of chaplainalia there, a lot of chaplain memorabilia. Um, they have wonderful archives there, which are accessible to researchers. You know, they've got collections of film stills, contemporary film magazines, you know, going back to the 1900s. And it's constantly under financial threat. And I can't... It seems to be such a, a fantastic resource... Why hasn't the BFI put its loving arms around it? Or, you know what I mean? It feels like it's been kind of abandoned by 
the whole film industry should be embracing it, you know. Yeah. Well, that's what's so wonderful about Talking Pictures. Well, one of the many things that's wonderful about Talking Pictures TV is that they film a lot of interviews there and they really, you know, use it. Mark Kermode as well has really, really promoted the place. He's done a great job of, of promoting it and trying to help in their struggle. But uh, the museum is in the position that the, the, the building and land were previously owned by an NHS trust who have now sold it to a developer. And there's still there's plans in planning by the developer who intend to keep the museum as a museum, cinema museum. But this is all ongoing and these things take a very, very long time. And in the meantime, just please keep signing the Cinema Museum petition which you can find online, donate if you'd like to. This institution gets no public funding whatsoever, no money at all. And it's internationally envied. People are always forever doing jealousy tweets about <laughs> how much they wish they could come to our events at the Kenton Bioscope. And you know, there's many other great groups putting on events at the Cinema Museum regularly. There's the Veto Project and... Um, the women in cocaine group that put on regular kind of pre-code screenings. Um, there's Kennington Noirs, which is a great strand as well. So Kennington Bioscope, you specialise in silent films. We specialise in silent films. So we were established in 2013 as a fundraising event specifically for the museum. Okay. Started by a young silent film accompanist and dance accompanist and filmmaker Cyrus Gebrish and quickly on board was John Sweeney who's an internationally renowned silent film accompanist then there was also um, collectors and film collectors and experts like Tony Fletcher David Wyatt Bob Gagan and enthusiasts like Amran Vance who programmed events there every two weeks and in 2013 to 14 this first year I attended every single event as a standard punter the fun girl as yeah and it was a great education, but it also gave a chance to young companies like Lillian Henley, Cyrus and Meg Morley to play regularly for silent film. And, you know, I had the opportunity to watch them grow and progress and flourish and go on to do other wonderful things um, besides. And that's been really wonderful. So uh, after a year, I asked, could they please show a film that I was really fond of? One of Ernst Lubitsch's films, he's, you know, my favourite director. I asked if they could show uh, Die Puppe, the doll, starring Ozzy Oswalder, who was, funnily enough, referred to as the German Mary Pickford. Um, <laughs> <laughs> every country must have its Mary Pickford. Yeah. It's essential. So I said, oh, you know, could you put this film on? They said, yes. I said, great. I said, would, would you mind, actually, if I introduced it, could I just do a little introduction for it? And they said, yes. So I kind of did a kind of maiden, <laughs> maiden speech, said, well, I'm who I am and... I really like this film and just talked a bit about it. And then a few months after that, they, the committee decided that I should be part of the steering group. It's been an absolutely fantastic experience to be able to find films in the BFI archive and show them to an audience after it not being seen for decades and have some kind of revival. Thanks very much to Michelle for coming on the show. For more information about the Kennington Bioscope and their upcoming events, including their silent comedy weekend in April, head over to kenningtonbioscope.com or follow them on Twitter on at Ken Bioscope. 
Do also go over to cinemamuseum.org.uk to find out about their work and to sign a petition to save the museum. My thanks also to Rob Baker for scaling the St Anne's Clock Tower with me. Rob has written two books about modern London history, Beautiful Idiots and Brilliant Lunatics, A Sideways Look at 20th Century London, and High Buildings, Low Morals, another sideways look at 20th century London. They're both fascinating reads, as are his two websites, Flashback and Another Nickel in the Machine. Links to Rob's Twitter and all of the above can be found on the show notes for this episode at SohoBytesPodcast.com. And finally, my thanks again to Tony from the Museum of Soho. You can find out about their work at mosoho.org.uk. If you'd like to comment on anything you've heard in the show, or if you'd like to suggest a film for us to talk about, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're on at ByteSoho, or you can email us at SohoBytesPodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast provider, and if you have time to leave a nice review, that would be very much appreciated. And for information about the guests and films from any of the episodes so far, head over to SohoBytesPodcast.com. Soho Bites is produced by me, Dom Delaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jingan Young. You can follow Jingan and her new research project on Twitter on at Cities in Cinema. That's it from me for this episode. Until next time, take good care of yourself, wash your hands, don't lick handrails, and bye for now. <laughs>